Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. You are tuned into our OITE review, our orthopedic and training exam review, featuring myself and I am Dr. Cole, as well as Dr. Spencer Woolwine. We are uh, we are two residents, and actually, he's now a fellow uh, who are doing this OITE review. So far, we have been doing trauma, and we have gotten a lot of good feedback. So we will continue on posting these episodes, and our back to our weekly episodes will start. Be- coming back next week for those that are longtime listeners that enjoy our uh, longer style talks about certain topics with different orthopedic surgeons so that will be coming back if not next week sometime this month so without further ado please enjoy this episode on uh, some more trauma some more lower extremities some hips uh, uh, and some um, some upper femur stuff so enjoy you are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome yet to another episode of Nailed It Ortho OITE review series featuring myself and Dr. Woolwine. Um, we have gone over some trauma stuff already. We've gone over some upper extremities, some pelvis, some acetabulum, some general trauma high points. And now it is time to hit some lower extremity stuff. So, um, Dr. Woolwine, let's just uh, let's let's just jump right into it. So um, let's talk a little bit about hip dislocation. So what's the usual mechanism of injury for a hip dislocation? Yeah, so uh most commonly they're going to be posteriorly directed. And so you're going to see that uh, with an axial load and then how the hip is positioned during that uh, axial load. And uh, so you're going to see a, for a posterior hip, you're going to see a flexed hip. It's adducted and it's internally rotated to uh, cause posterior dislocation and then an anterior a little bit more rare but you're going to get that axial load in an extended abducted and externally rotated hip so kind of the opposite of what a, a posterior hip dislocation would be so um hip dislocations i mean outside of your hip being out of place uh uh, what other major concern uh do you have uh for a hip dislocation Yes, yeah, so you have a concern of avascular necrosis, right? So if a hip is dislocated more than 12 hours, you, you have at least a 50% chance of AVN. So again, I'll repeat that. If your hip is dislocated more than 12 hours, you have a 50% chance of avascular necrosis. And you, you still you have a less chance rate. If your uh, hip is reduced within six hours, your AVN rate is about anywhere from two to 6%. And, uh, you know, AVN appears uh, within two years uh, in nearly all cases. So, again, if the hip is reduced within six hours, you have an AVN rate of two to six percent. And if you uh, if the hip is reduced within 12 hours, you have an AVN rate of about 50 percent. So that kind of harps on the main point is we want to try to avoid AVN uh, as possible. So you want to kind of do this on a, uh, you know, emergent basis you don't want that hip to die and and set that patient up for needing you know further surgeries in the future possibly a total hip or a lot of try to hip preservation uh, procedures so you want to try to minimize that and uh, if you want to read up a little bit more about this and kind of hip dislocations and where we got these numbers from there's a good uh, review article in the annual journal actually from 2010 
named hip dislocation evaluation and management by Dr. David Folk. So that is something that you can read to uh, dive a little bit more deeper into that. But so what is the uh, treatment of a hip dislocation? What should we do if this rolls into the ED and uh, you are on call and you have a second year resident or a first year who calls you and says, hey, hey, Dr. Wuhan, we have a, we have the ED just uh, called and said, you know, we have a hip dislocation. They said they're doing a bunch of sedations right now and they won't be able to get to it for another 12 or 13 hours. Uh, what are you, you going to tell them at that point? So at that point, um, they would, I mean, if you plead and, and plead and plead to get some sort of sedation for this patient, but if that's not the case, then then it really becomes a more uh, operative uh, style case. So um, getting it up to the OR, letting letting the OR staff and, and OR schedulers know uh, about the emergent nature of this and that they're unable to do it uh, in the ER. So you want to get it emergently closed, reduced, just to reduce that rate of AVN down from 50 to 2%, which is a major, major jump. And then uh, you want to, uh, assess the stability um, post-reduction. Um, so you want to really, once you get it back in place, you want to try and dislocate it again to see, um, is this something that's going to easily jump back out of socket or is it relatively stable? Uh, and then uh, for the imaging, um, we've, I mean, we kind of beat that to death in the uh, pelvis and acetabulum, but uh, similar things with the hip dislocation. What sort of imaging are we are we looking at getting? Yeah, so you know, of course you want to always have an uh, an AP view that shows the hip is in place. But you, if you want a view that can further delineate the posterior wall, you will get your obturator oblique Jude view, and that'll give you a little bit uh, better view of the posterior wall. And then many get a CT scan afterwards to make sure that the the hip is reduced, it's concentrically reduced, and that there are aren't anything that we're missing, right? There are not any intraarticular fragments or marginal impaction or things that we know um, would 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 could sway your treatment uh, option uh, from uh, from non-operative to possibly operative, uh, uh, depending on what all is going on with this patient. And I, I mentioned a little bit of it. And I, I, well, let's go into it. So things you want to look for on a, on a CT scan after the hip dislocation is reduced is one, you want to make sure it's concentrically reduced, right? So you can you can utilize all your different views. You can use uh, utilize your axial, uh, your coronal, and your sagittal views. But man, a lot of people just tend to use their axials. But anyways, however you do it, you want to make sure that the hip is concentrically reduced. Uh, you want to be on the look to see if there are any intraarticular loose bodies. And you also want to make sure there's not a fracture of the femoral head as well. So those are all things that you want to be on the lookout for for after uh, after you reduce the hip and you're getting a CT scan. Now, uh, what is something that can be used in unstable hips after reduction. So say, you know, your second year, you know, went down and reduced it and they said, hey, it's, it's, it's super, it's really unstable. As soon as I flex him to 20 degrees, he, he dislocates posteriorly. What are some things that you may tell them uh, to do at that, at, at that time? Uh, yeah, so uh, first thing is uh, an abduction pillow. Uh, one, uh, just because it is the uh, kind of least invasive. You can also do like a knee immobilizer plus an abduction pillow just to help really stabilize that leg and make it really hard for that patient to dislocate. But um, I mean, the ones like uh, that, that are associated with posterior wall fractures or 
very, very high energy. The, they have zero posterior soft tissues in place to help keep them located. You can do skeletal traction. Um, similarly, with uh, any sort of high axial load, you want to make sure that you're also ruling out other uh, fractures in that extremity. So prior to placing a skeletal traction pin, uh, you want to get a knee x-ray just so you're not uh, putting a pin in a, in a fractured portion of the lower extremity that may have gone missed when everybody's so focused on that hip dislocation. Um, but uh, for, for us here, and it might be the same for you guys too, uh, tibial traction is commonly used uh, for like femoral shaft fractures, but I like to go up to the distal femur for uh, hip uh, dislocations just because uh, you're pulling directly through the femur and you're not pulling through a, a knee that has a potential uh, cruciate uh, ligament injury. Um, so, I mean, that's more kind of personal preference and I don't think it's going to be tested at all, but just something to keep in mind if you're kind of wondering, hey, should I do proximal tibia or distal femur? I think a distal femur and a hip dislocation may may help you out a little bit more. But, yeah, uh, same thing. Yeah. That's, what, that's what we do uh, over here. Um, mostly, most of the time is going to be distal femur traction uh, unless, you know, something, you know, unless there's just like an intraarticular distal femur fracture or something precluding. And, and I really liked your point about making sure that you have knee x-rays. You don't want to be uh, trying to put in a, a distal femur traction pin and there's a total knee arthroplasty there, a long stem total knee that you didn't, uh, that you didn't note because you didn't get full films of the extremity. So, uh, I yep. definitely just want to reiterate that point that you said. And, um, and, and, and so, you know, patients that had these hip dislocations, what is the most common complication? I know we spoke about AVN being a potential complication. What is the most common constipation complication after a hip dislocation? Yeah. So, uh, post-traumatic arthritis, I, I think that that can be said for just about any, uh, joint dislocation. Um, but yeah, that post uh, the post traumatic arthritis can be as high as about 16% in a true hip dislocation, and then uh, as high as 70% if there's an associated fracture. Which I mean, it just kind of makes sense. I mean, that 70% is pretty high uh, to to think about. But if there is an associated fracture with a dislocation, you are just causing a lot more uh, internal joint injury. And so that that uh, post-traumatic arthritis uh, incidence or prevalence is going to go way up. Um, but other uh, complications that you have to look out for are sciatic nerve injury and notably the peroneal division. So you're going to see a lack of ankle dorsiflexion and uh, great toe or a lesser digit extension uh, because of that peroneal nerve and then also a, a decreased ankle eversion. Uh, but um, that's another key reason why uh, getting a hip reduced is, is also important. It's not just for the AVN, but also a hip that's dislocated posteriorly can put a lot of tension on that sciatic nerve. Uh, and uh, you, you just want to relieve as much of that tension as possible by uh, putting it back in place. Um, so I just went over true hip dislocations, but uh, we know that associated fractures can happen. Um, posterior wall is common, but also the ones of the femoral head. So what's the uh, Pipkin classification of a femoral head fractures? 
Yeah, just like you said, this is going to be for femoral head fractures. This Pupkin classification. It's a classification that's uh, that classifies femoral head fractures, um, and and the, and it looks at the fracture location relative to the fovea, and also the uh, associated injuries, you know, of the acetabulum or of the femoral neck. So a Pipkin one is going to be a femoral head fracture that is below the level of the fovea. A Pipkin two will be above the level of the fovea, and then three, if you have a uh, ipsilateral femoral neck fracture, and then four, if you have an uh, acetabulum fracture. So if you have a femoral head fracture with an acetabulum fracture, that is automatically a Pipkin four. So, uh, or, you know, very notably, it may be a hip dislocation where you have a posterior wall fracture and then you see a piece of the femoral head is missing, you know, that is a Pipkin four because there is an acetabulum fracture. So Boom, just know that. So what is the treatment of a, of a Pipkin 1 femoral head fracture where the fracture is below the level of the fovea? Yeah, so if it's uh, non-displaced, because it is below the fovea, it's considered to be not a portion of the weight-bearing portion of that femoral head. Uh, typically, non-operative treatment with partial weight-bearing for about a month uh, to a month and a half is uh, all that's needed for that. However, uh, because uh, you need to get these CT scans uh, to evaluate for any um, internal uh, joint derangement, if even if it is a Pipkin 1 and it's comminuted and some of those pieces do uh, migrate uh, superiorly and become uh, intra, intra-articular more on the weight-bearing portion, then you do want to uh, excise those uh, pieces, um, not necessarily fix them because they're not in the weight-bearing portion, but if they are small and numerous, you want to just excise them. Um, but moving on to a Pipkin II, uh, what's the treatment for that one? Yeah, so for these Pipkin twos where the fracture is above the level of the fovea, um, you know, there are kind of two two options. So if this is a non-displaced fracture, you can sometimes treat it with partial weight bearing for four to six weeks and then frequently get radiographs to note any type of displacement versus you can um, open reduce uh, and use some counter sunk screws to make sure you have uh, have that femoral head reduced and that there aren't any screws just sticking all the way out into the into the joint. So open reduction with uh, countersunk screws versus partial weight bearing with frequent radiographs. Now, yeah, and I, I uh, actually yeah. just recently did a question on uh, ortho bullets that, uh, and I don't know if this is important at all, but uh, I mean, typically we associate small frag screws with small bones, um, but uh, small frag screws that are countersunk are all that's needed for these sort of fractures. You don't need to to use uh, very thick or heavy screws for this just because you're really just trying to hold the articular portions together and not necessarily uh, hold a major joint fragment. So uh, that was the key takeaway point from that question was just all that's needed are countersunk small frag screws to compress that intraarticular fracture. Mm. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Um, that's a great point to make. And um, hopefully when I do some questions, I, I get that right. And I will uh, thank you in my head. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and, and since we're we're kind of talking about these Pipkin ones and Pipkin twos, so the ones that we do operate on and that we're gonna go, you know, open reduce and fix with these countersunk screws, what uh, what approach is typically gonna be used for these Pipkin ones and Pipkin twos, and any risks associated with that? Yeah, so uh, I think that the anterior approach is probably the the most used and the uh, most tested approach uh, through the. Uh, sartorius and tfl interval and then glute medius and rectus uh deeper um the good part about this is a lot of these fractures of the femoral head are going to be situated more on the antero inferior aspect or the antero superior aspect of the head so approaching it from an anterior uh approach is going to be uh the most beneficial you have no increased risk for AVN because you're not uh, approaching through the back and you're not uh, uh, touching the medial femoral circumflex. And um, it's, I mean, it is a, still an approach that you have to be, be cautious of uh, medially with the femoral nerve, but uh, I think that the anterior approach is the easiest one to, to, to go after these Pipkin 1 and 2s. But uh, what about... Pipkin threes and fours. What are the treatment options for those? Yeah, so threes and fours. Again, three is going to be what is associated uh, fracture of the the femoral neck, and then four is going to be acetabulum. And you pretty much fix those. You know, uh, you fix all of them, right? So you you fix the you fix the head of the femur, and then you also fix the neck. First is you know. It, if it's possibly a very displaced femoral neck fracture, you may do an arthroplasty uh, in an elderly patient uh, versus a Pipkin four, fix the head and with some counterstorm screws. And then you also fix the acetabulum, which whatever uh, whatever approach or whatever type of fixation that that needs. Now, um, what which classification of these Pipkins are associated with the highest rate of AVN? I know we just spoke about the approaches for the Pipkin ones and twos. We don't have much of a, a no increase in the AVN risk, but uh, what classification is associated with the highest rate of AVN? Yeah, and it's really whatever fracture has the highest rate of AVN for uh, femoral or proximal femur fractures, and that's going to be that head plus femoral neck or the Pipkin three. Uh, is going to be the the biggest concern, and then after that, it's going to be the Pipkin four, uh, just because it is associated with an acetabulum fracture and possible hip dislocation, which we know puts the the, the femoral head at, at a higher rate of ABN. Um, and uh, I briefly mentioned this before, but what's the uh, artery that contributes the most blood supply to the femoral head? Yeah, and, and I remember this was a little confusing because it's like there's a medial and lateral part, but of the medial femoral circumflex artery, there are lateral retinacular vessels, and that is what contributes mostly to the blood supply of the femoral head. So again, off of the medial femoral circumflex artery, there are lateral retinacular vessels that contribute most uh, to the blood supply of the femoral head. Now, moving forth, uh, or moving, I guess, down, we could say, uh, what are some of the classification systems used for femoral neck fractures that we will all get asked about and all see and are pretty much expected to know? Yeah, so uh, towels and garden, um, I mean, they're just as commonly used as kind of uh, Schatzker and Young and Burgess that we just went over, but uh, the... I'll, I'll do the Powell's and then I'll have you cover uh, garden, but 
the palace classification is based on the orientation of the fracture line based on a AP x-ray of the hip. So you have types one, two, and three. Type one is a more transverse type fracture where the fracture is in a 30 degree or less plane from the horizontal. A type two is considered an oblique fracture that is between 30 and 50 degrees from the horizontal plane. And then a type three is a vertical or greater than 50 degree from the horizontal plane uh, type of uh, injury. And it's uh, thought that as you increase from type one to three, it's a higher velocity type of injury causing a more sheer type injury. So the type three with the vertical has much more axial load and much more shearing forces of that femoral neck. So that's where you're going to get the highest rate of non-union and also the highest rate of AVN. Um, and then uh, moving on to garden, which is uh, a little bit different than Powell's, but used in conjunction with it. Yeah. So, you know, we'll talk about the gardens classification. This is more for like your kind of your elderly hip fractures. And and what this is judged on is, is kind of just on the degree of displacement in the trabecular lines. So you have in general, your non-displaced and then your displaced fractures. So your garden one and two are going to be your non-displaced or your stable fractures. So your garden one is kind of going to be that valgus impacted fracture. Uh, your garden two is going to be a complete fracture, but it's not displaced. And then garden three and four are going to be your displaced fractures that are unstable. So garden three is just going to be incompletely displaced and garden four is going to be completely displaced. And one thing that I've found uh, that can help with these are looking at the trabecular lines and making sure they match up. If they don't, that clues you in towards you may have some type of displacement or a fracture. And then for me, of course, AP is great, but the lateral, uh, the lateral of the hip uh, and kind of trying to follow that anterior or posterior uh, cortical lines, the femur, and seeing if those, if those match up. And a lot of times they don't, well, you know, they don't in these garden three and garden fours. Now, say for example, you know, you got a 60 year old female that fell. Um, has just been having some like, you know, pain over the past couple of days. Um, and you know, you go, they come to the, to the ED and they're still playing of just a bunch of hip pain, but they get x-rays and they're inconclusive, but you just, you know, the positive log, they have pain when you log roll them, when you, when you flex them up, what, what is a, a if you just want to get a really sensitive scan to rule out a femoral neck fracture, what is something that you can get? Yeah. So for these patients, you want to get an MRI, not a CT scan because a CT scan can still fool you, but that MRI will show that bony edema, that non-displaced fracture line uh, that will clue you into uh, femoral neck or uh, intertroch fracture uh, that can uh, kind of necessitate a need for stabilization despite the relatively benign appearance on radiographs. So um, one, of the, one of the things that we try and hammer in our uh, visiting med students and our uh, uh, younger residents uh, is really these discussions with the patients who have these uh, sort of injuries. Um, and, and what are some of the key uh, points that you want to make sure you know in, in your notes and, and relay to attendings uh, about uh, the kind of status of the patient? Yeah. So, you, I mean, you want to know their overall, just like you said, their overall functional status and, and, and kind of within, 
and consider their physiological age, right? So are they, you know, a patient that is on, uh, that is normally bed bound, that doesn't get around too much, that is of low functioning, significant comorbidities, or had pre-existing arthritis and hip pain versus is this your six-year-old that goes on and runs, that runs two or three miles every single day that's very active. They live alone by themselves, uh, don't need any type of help, no assistance, you know, getting around. They don't walk with a cane or a walker. You know, that or, or that person may be 60 or 65 or 70, but physiologically they're a little bit younger. So you want to get an idea for what their functional status is. You know, did they have pre-existing hip pain? Did they uh, did they walk around with a walker? Or were they independent? You know, were they independently functioning? Uh, you just want to get an overall picture to, of, of what this patient's health is like. Are, you know, are they old and uh, is it an elderly patient with Parkinson's or dementia that doesn't really get around that much that has a seizure disorder? These are all, you know, things that you want to uh, obtain from the patient if you're not able to obtain from the patient, from the patient's family or their caregivers. And all that will have a play into how you end up treating these patients in the, in the, in the treatment of choice. Um, but since we're talking about treatment and, you know, most of these uh, typically get fixed, but let's just say we're going to fix them. What, when should the surgery be performed in order to decrease the mortality rates for femoral neck fractures? Yeah. So you want to really get to these patients within the first, uh, 24 to 48 hours. Um, and a lot of that is really due to not necessarily, uh, a, an AVN, risk, even though that if you are planning on anatomically fixing these fractures, that, that is a concern, but it's really just to uh, get these patients up and moving as quickly as possible so that their level of deconditioning does not uh, decompensate uh, over a period of time. And um, uh, going kind of uh, forward is... Uh, we, we see a lot of these patients that uh, maybe need some preoperative screening and uh, preoperative workup, which is, uh, which is great. You want to definitely optimize these patients and the ones that need to be optimized uh, have a better outcome uh, regardless of their delay to surgery if they are medically optimized. But we tend to see a lot of over-screening for some of these patients in terms of like cardiac workup, whether it's waiting on an echo to get, to get done or a formal cardiology uh, test. And I know that there are a couple of new studies out that does show uh, uh, diminished use of resources and a delay to surgery for some of these patients. So some of these questions might start showing up that say that maybe a preoperative echo in a lot of these patients is not as necessary as we once thought. So uh, key points for this, you definitely want to get to them within 48 hours and you want to medically optimize them as much as possible, but also being cognizant of talking to the uh, internal medicine team or the geriatrics team that might be taking care of some of these elderly patients that maybe some of these extra tests might be actually detrimental to their care rather than uh, helpful. So um, which uh, femoral neck fractures uh, would you consider not operating on? Yeah, and, and that was a good point that you just made there. Um, but yeah, if, if, as far as patients that you would consider not operating on, you could consider this in non-displaced um, fractures. But although most people um, will, will opt to stabilize uh, these fractures to prevent any type of further displacement, um, I know some you know the not there may be non-operative treatment with a, a femoral. Uh, 
less stressed reaction where you get a where you get an MRI and you just see a bunch of edema, but there are no clear fractural lines. Those may be one that you treat non-operatively, but pretty much anybody, most people that have a fracture uh, of their hip are, are going to go for some type of uh, some type of fixation. And um, and so what are since we're talking about fixation, what's kind of that typical uh, fixation <laughs> for these garden one or garden two, you know, these valgus impacted or complete but non-displaced femoral neck fractures or an occult femoral neck fracture? What is a what, what is a typical fixation and what are some of the kind of high points um, about that? Yeah, yeah so uh, for the kind of uh, more vertically based gardens uh, or even, uh, or, sorry, the uh, valgus impacted gardens, um, three uh, parallel screws in an inverted triangle uh, are is the typical uh, configuration, and uh, you really want to make sure that the uh, screw start point for that inferior most screw is uh, at or above the lesser uh, trochanter. Uh, just because if it is below the lesser trochanter, there is a, a stress riser there and it can be associated with a, a peri-implant uh, subtroch fracture. Um, and uh, that, uh, not really tested, but that uh, inferior most screw, you really want to make sure that that is going along that kind of posterior inferior uh, calcar uh, just to provide the most uh, stability. Um, uh, and it's, that's especially uh, key in osteoporotic bone and trying to get good screw spread. I've seen a few patients that have been fixed where they get their three screws and they're in an inverted triangle, but they only fill a small portion of the overall uh, femoral uh, neck diameter. So getting good screw spread in that uh, femoral neck is also key to providing the most stability that you possibly can. Um, but then these more vertical uh, fractures, they, they're a little bit of a different beast. And how does your treatment uh, change for these? Yeah. So, and again, I think those are definitely uh, strong points that you just made about, you know, that kind of inverted triangle, three parallel screws, making sure you have a good spread between those screws and making sure that inferior screw is, is not below the lesser choke because you don't want to, you know, a peri-implant fracture. But in these, these patients that have these, you know, these kind of basic cervical um, or Powell's three, these vertical, uh, vertically oriented fractures, these may be ones that you may treat with a sliding hip screw device um, with a with a, a derotation screw. Some people who kind of treat these like their intertrochanteric femur fractures uh, with that sliding hip screw that allows a little bit for some kind of um, uh, controlled collapse uh, and that derotation screw to help prevent, you know, rotation of that, of that segment. But um, that, that's kind of, you know, you want to treat the, uh, the geometry of the fracture as well. Uh, if you're just kind of thinking back to physics. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed It Over the Podcast, especially our OITE review. Now, we will have three asks of you after listening to this episode. One, if you can share this with a co-resident, a co-fellow, a co-attending, or a friend, or somebody that you know could benefit from some orthopedic knowledge. That is our first ask. Our second ask is if you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Nailed It Ortho. Again, that's going to be Nailed It Ortho. And third... 
that's not so much of an ask but if you're a resident and you're preparing for oites we are working on a uh, podcast companion book which will pretty much reinforce all the things that we talk about here and if you're interested in getting some access to that or being a part of the process to help us come up with a couple of things look in the description and click the link in the description and put your uh, put your name and uh, email there and we will reach out to you or we'll keep you updated <laughs> uh, until next time we'll see you next week